Blog Talk Radio. February 22nd, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and welcome to those of you who are joining me live in the Blog Talk Radio chat room or maybe just listening wherever you are. If you go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com, you can see the title and program notes for today's show. Of course, you're probably seeing the title there on Blog Talk as well. It's Liars, Damn Liars, Damn spelt D-A-M, and ATF Agents. Liars, Damn Liars, and ATF Agents. And it seems that most of the stories in the program notes will all center on this issue of honesty, which is pretty fun. Um There's a listener by the name of Daniel who sent me the tip on the Milo and PewDiePie stories, you know, that seem to conjoin a couple of smear jobs going on out there. And that's obviously the first of of the liars. And then, of course, you can't resist looking at government agencies lying about reality with respect to who's to blame with the Oroville Dam disaster or a potential disaster. And then finally, a story just dropped in my lap this morning from the New York Times, ATF agents involved in all sorts of fraudulent transactions, and we'll talk about that as well. There's some other things also centered on the topic of honesty. So as I said, go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com, if you want to check out all of the program notes. Even after the show, you might want to watch some of the YouTube videos that I've got posted there about the Milo Yiannopoulos and PewDiePie smear job controversies. So we can check those out. If you want to call in and talk about any of the topics that I've got listed there today, the number at which to do so is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. So I'll be watching the uh, switchboard here. And I've also got a window with the chat room and I've got my blog on my iPad. So unless I have some juggling fumbles, I think I'm going to be okay. Oh, I just got a window. Firefox has determined that an add-on causes security problems. Restart your Firefox now. No, I'm running my show through Firefox. I'll do it later. Um, Okay, so go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com and um, plugins, leave me alone and we'll have a show. That'll be awesome. So the first one, of course, we're going to talk about 
Milo Yiannopoulos. I've joked about him being my former ex-whatever gay boyfriend. Um, the story that first came out is, you know, what, what happened? So he was basically chosen to be the keynote speaker at CPAC, which is a huge deal and I think an awesome development, or it would have been an awesome development, because CPAC, there's been all sorts of scandals in the past about whether they would accept homosexuals even as exhibitors, you know, with booths that were officially allowed by CPAC and stuff like that, much less a keynote speaker who's a homosexual. Uh, Milo's done a whole lot of work in the cause of freedom of expression. You may not always agree with what he says. I don't. But nonetheless, you know, cool development, right? There's been a lot of, you know, Berkeley showed some people at Berkeley showed their true stripes when he had a speaking engagement there recently and stuff like that. So I thought a good development. And then the blaze comes out with this story a couple days later. And the headline is video surfaces of Milo Yiannopoulos defending pedophilia. The ACU board, American conservative union, which is the one that handles CPAC they say the ACU, ACU, excuse me, ACU board was reportedly not consulted on this CPAC invite. That's the headline of this story. If you go and click through and look at the story, Chris Enlow, I don't even know who he is, but he's the writer over at Blaze, and they chose a singularly unflattering picture of my gay ex-boyfriend, Milo. There's great pictures of him. He's a very attractive guy, but of course they choose the least flattering picture they can find to put there. And they're really participating in what I'm going to you know, explain to you and what he's explained as a smear job. They say, you know, you know, yeah, Milo was selected for the CPAC keynote speaker. Many criticize the move because Yiannopoulos is not seen as a traditional conservative, if a conservative at all. Instead, Yiannopoulos is seen as the figurehead of the alt-right movement. Of course, he's denied that, and I think in a credible way. This is a movement that, that prides itself in nationalism, which many accuse of racism and anti-Semitism. Many accuse, right? So you just get that smear in there. This is Jonah Goldberg, a senior editor for conservative magazine National Review, who is seen as one of the conservative leaders in a postmodern politics, said the move to include Yiannopoulos is, quote, sad and disappointing. So therefore, you know, you should accept it, that it's sad and disappointing, Still, the ACU chairman, Matt Schlapp, defended the decision in comments to The Hollywood Reporter, which broke the story about Yiannopoulos. Quote, an epidemic of speech suppression has taken over college campuses, Schlapp told the news outlet. And then, quote, Milo has exposed their liberal thuggery, and we think free speech includes hearing Milo's important perspective, end quote. Now, mind you, if CPAC decided that they disagree with the things that Milo says, and they didn't want to, you know, give a platform to Milo. Okay, that's fine too. But if they decide that freedom of expression is such an important issue right now, that even though many of them likely disagree with Milo's viewpoint, lifestyle, you have, you know, you name it, nonetheless, they want to give him a platform in the name of freedom of expression. That's wonderful too. Anyway, so then this article, this Blaze article goes on to say that less than a day, 
right, less than one day after this announcement about CPAC, a video surfaced of Yiannopoulos allegedly defending pedophilia in the past. Now, I watched a video that I have posted at the blog, and it's, you know, defending Milo Yiannopoulos. And in that video, the guy who's defending Milo names the name of the outlet that actually aired the video. I'm not going to, A, because I forgot it, and B, why dignify it? Because the video, as far as I can tell, is a smear job. And if you want to hear the whole story, what you do is you watch Milo's full press conference. I went ahead and posted the link to Milo's full press conference where he explains what happened. In essence, what happened, you know, and it's funny, Milo, let me get my notes because I often on a day like today where I've got a lot to say, make a whole sheet of notes here. Um, Milo talks about the fact that he's constantly being interviewed and the way that he put it is that, you know, there's thousands of hours of him, quote, shooting shit on different people's shows. And so, you know, if you want to go and you want to, especially if you want to take him out of context, but even if you don't want to take him out of context, if you want to, you know, look at these live shows and nitpick a formulation of his, then yeah, you're going to find something offensive there. It turns out that he does take responsibility and apologize for two different statements that he has made that seem to either be flippant about the topic of pedophilia or maybe, you know, if you listen to it and you, you know, take it the wrong way, it could be that he's seen as advocating for pedophilia. Uh, obviously he doesn't intend to do that. And he says he doesn't intend to do that in the video. And I suggest watching, you know, just watch him, um, you know, when he, when he's defending himself, you know, he talks about his record condemning pedophilia, that he's actually exposed child abusers in his journalism, that he takes it very seriously. Most importantly, he talks about the fact that he was a victim of child sexual abuse himself. And so that some of the comments that you see on the video, the much, you know, touted video of him supposedly advocating for pedophilia, uh, some of the videos were him joking about his own experience, right? He was abused as a minor. Uh, in one, one person was a priest who, who did it. And he's making some pretty tasteless jokes about it. But in part, you say, okay, well, this is his way of dealing with it is to make some gallows humor, as he calls it, about the topic. Uh, in the chat room, a listener named Quinn actually posts the actual interview, the original interview, the full interview, thank you, not for the, the short clip or whatever, on the podcast. I'm not going to name the podcast just because I just I don't want to give it the dignity. Um, or I guess maybe what watch the whole interview, right? Because it's not them who's responsible. Okay, so the, so the podcast that was responsible for the interview, it's called Drunken Peasant, and they're not the ones who are responsible for taking him out of context and smearing him later interviewed him. Um, anyway, you know, long story short, what has happened to Milo because he was taken out of context and exposed for comments that he made on a live show, you know, an impromptu ad lib interview and, you know, maybe made some insensitive remarks about this topic, a topic that, you know, if you knew his entire context, that he himself was a victim of abuse, you know that he would not be advocating for this. Um, 
you know, what has happened to him as a consequence. First of all, he has found it necessary to resign from Breitbart. And in his press conference, he talks about the fact that Breitbart has been so great to him and stood by him and that he feels like the best thing he can do for them in return is, in essence, not to contaminate them by association with him and this scandal. And so, therefore, he's resigning. I've put the link to the announcement on Breitbart where they talk about the resignation. And in it, they say, you know, he submitted his letter of resignation and we have accepted it. I would say to Breitbart, you shouldn't have accepted it just based on what I've seen from this story and what I've seen from Milo. Maybe you you should stand by him again, but that's your choice. And I think he's going to be okay on his own. Uh, he's He's got a pile to say. And, you know, he talks about the fact that whereas the people who have been trying to smear him are not going to be out there speaking and writing and advocating for the next 30 years he is. And if anything, this is getting him a larger audience. Um, but that's one thing, Breitbart, his position at Breitbart is gone. I think he's going to be okay without that. The other thing that's happened was his book deal with Simon, Simon and Schuster was canceled and his book was due out on June 13th. But now he says there's going to be a different publisher. It'll still be out this year. It's probably going to include an extra chapter on this particular topic because, again, it's free speech. And what are we seeing? We're seeing people in the culture trying to shut him down, trying to take away from him platforms. Of course, CPAC canceled with him, too. And he was saying that he doubts he's even going to go to CPAC now. Um I think he said it would be indecorous. I think that was the word he used. I just, I love this guy. Um, he he has a wonderful vocabulary uh, in addition to, you know, in, in other ways, you know, if you watch him speak, he, he's endearing in a number of ways. Even if you disagree with him, you think some of the things are ill-advised. This is one of the questions that we could ask. What are the bounds of, of humor that should be used by someone like a Milo Yiannopoulos, a PewDiePie? Uh, we're going to talk about PewDiePie in a second in the tasteless humor that he engaged in on his show. Um, you know, but what do we have here? We have people in the culture. We, it's not government, right? You know, CPAC is not government, American Conservative Union. They try to have influence over politics, but they themselves are not the government. They're going to go ahead. You know, they canceled his uh, invitation. Um, we have the blaze, right? Uh, just putting that headline out there and, perpetuating the little smear job, uh, you know, and talking about the fact basically that he shouldn't have been invited to CPAC in the first place and juxtaposing it with this story about the pedophilia. Whoever it is who made the smear video, I don't know who it is. Don't dignify them with any exposure. Um, Taking Milo out of context. These people are participating in what I've called in the past a culture of censorship. It's not censorship technically because it's not a government action, but these are people who are deliberately taking him out of context, conjoining statements taken out of context with statements that he's made uh, that I would say it's understandable that he would make statements that maybe sound like he's advocating for pedophilia in in a certain context, given his background as a victim of it himself. It's understandable. They are smearing him, and he is, I think, doing some valuable work 
on behalf of the cause of free speech and some other things. One of the, you know, the thing that used to get me to call him my, my gay boyfriend um, was that he was going to go, and I, I can't remember if he did it. He had a planned event. I'm sure he did. He's just so bold. So he was going to the Middle East, and or maybe it wasn't in the Middle East, but it was in one of these countries where they have a neighborhood that's supposedly off limits because it's governed by Sharia or whatever. And he's going to lead a demonstration a really outspoken demonstration, basically flaunting homosexuality or something, you know, in these guys' faces, because you know what, you know, the the people, the devout Muslims want to do to homosexuals that they want to hang them and, and, you know, stone them to death. Or in Iran, they have forced conversions of homosexuals. They just don't approve of, of this lifestyle. It's, it's horrendous, the things that they do. And Milo's just going to throw it in their face. And it's just wonderful for him, you know, to be brave enough to go do this. And, you know, like I said, he goes to Berkeley and deals with all of that mess. There's a lot of really good things that he does, regardless of whether you agree with him on anything else, you could say, okay, some of the things he does are heroic. You know, we talked in the past about Martin Luther King Jr. I don't agree with him on everything, but I would still call him a hero. So these people are trying to shut him down with a smear job. It's dishonest to take him out of context and smear him in the way that they have. And if they think that they're gaining a value by smearing somebody in in hopes of shutting him down, first of all, they're not going to shut him down. It it seems apparent that even more people are coming to his defense. Here I am doing a podcast, you know, saying that he was unfairly smeared. I I think his audience is only going to grow. Like he said, there's, you know, millions of people who are probably going to read his book. It's going to bring this issue of freedom of expression more to the forefront. And CPAC is the worst off for not having him. I hope that they reconsider. I'm hoping Breitbart brings him back if they can. Redmond MTP in the chat room says, regarding the limits of comedy, reading The Greek Way by Hamilton, I know that book, and, and was really surprised how wide open and accepting they were of just about unlimited topics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Quinn in the chat room says, if I were bi, I'd want Milo for a boyfriend and Amy for a girlfriend. Um, so now you're going to convert me to polyamory, which I said I have no interest in. I don't even know who Quinn is, though, so I don't know if that would work. But um, in any event, it's an interesting idea, right? Um, Bill Maher in, says, Rob in the chat room, att- apparently attempted to take some credit for this, but now someone has dug up a video of Maher allegedly giving a pass to an adult female having sex with a 14-year-old boy. Ah, you know, it's really interesting, some of this stuff. There's a video now of George Takei out there, and then they're trying to have Jake Tapper comment. And I think Jake Tapper did comment on it on Twitter, this whole thing, you know, don't show a double standard, Jake Tapper. If you're going to criticize Milo, then you've got to criticize George Takei. If you take people out of context, sure. As I understand it, and this is something that Milo talked about in his press conference, you know, any victim of abuse, there is, I don't, I don't know if Stockholm syndrome is the way to, refer to it technically, so don't hold me accountable for that. But there is this tendency on the, you know, part of the victims of abuse to make excuses for the abuser. And that's very just understandable from a psychological standpoint. I don't know 
if what Milo talked about in his press conference is an example of this or not. People who have, you know, a psychology background can, you know, think about this more. But he was talking about the fact that for some young homosexuals who either do face or fear that they're going to face hostility at home about their sexual orientation, that a relationship with an older man can be a tremendous value in terms of providing the acceptance and stuff that they want. Now, Milo was, you know, quick to add that he thinks that the age of consent in Germany, for example, which happens to be 14. So if you want to understand part of Milo's context, the actual legal age of consent in Germany is 14. He says, I think that's too low. The age of consent in England is 16, right? He engaged in a relationship when he was 17 with someone who was 29. And he said he found that relationship to be of value in terms of providing acceptance. There's a number of young homosexuals who are considering suicide and things because of the fear of coming out. So is that a valid explanation for part of this? You know, would it have to be somebody older? Maybe it would have to be somebody older where you see the person as you know, an authority figure who provides the acceptance. And, you know, again, this is all psychology. But in any event, in talking about this benefit, which is something that's widely perceived among homosexuals when they think about what happened to them when they were younger, if, you know, if they were also in a relationship like this who helped them kind of get through this really tumultuous period, teenage years are horrible for so many people that, you know, for someone who's homosexual, it could be even a more traumatic time, right? Um, you can understand why he would say some of the things that he did, again, taken out of context, ad-libbing, impromptu comments about this topic. Uh, and again, you know, it, it's inexcusable to take him out of context on some of the other things. And, you know, could you give him a pass in, in terms of having gallows humor about, you know, for example, his relationship with the priest. He made a, you know, pretty f funny but also tasteless joke about that. Rob in the chat room says pedophilia is one of the longtime smears used by religious conservatives to condemn homosexuality. No doubt. And again, I'm not an expert, but to me, what Milo is talking about is completely understandable. Rob says, my personal favorite smear is, quote, unconvicted felon, end quote. You know, again, should the age of consent in the United States be a little bit lower? Should it be 16 like it is in Great Britain or not? These are debates that we can have. Milo says he's not particularly advocating for an age of consent. Maybe in some of the states in the United States it's different. I, I think it might be a state-by-state -state issue. I'm not sure. Maybe 17 somewhere, 18 other places. I think it's 18 in California. As far as I know. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the, the idea of actually giving a pass to an adult female having sex with a 12 year old, if Bill Maher actually did that, that's pretty tasteless. I couldn't see how that would help. And, and again, you know, if you think that part of the reason that it might be good for a young homosexual to have a relationship with someone who's quite a bit older, it seems like it wouldn't be the case for a young heterosexual male unless maybe, you know, you'd say, okay, there was something else going on in his life where 
he had this fear and lack of acceptance and somehow that helped. I, I it, No, it just didn't seem right to me. It, it seems like a very different thing. Um, and, you know, maybe Mar was a hypocrite in a certain way. I don't know. I, you know, I can't, like I said, I can't comment on that. But what seems clear to me after looking at this case of Milo is that it was a smear job and it's dishonest and they're doing it, they think, to obtain some sort of value by shutting him down. But A, I don't think it's a value as such. And B, they're not obtaining it. If if they are going to be silencing him, it's nothing that they achieved in an honest way by actually engaging with the ideas that he promotes. If you want to discredit Milo, then take on his ideas, his honestly held and advocated for ideas. Don't engage in a cowardly smear like this, which seems like what they've done. Um, one interesting comment that Milo made during the conference, and I'm going to pick it up later in this show today, is he says that he thinks as a foreigner that he might be capable of understanding America, American culture better than Americans can, even though he's been here only a year and a half or so. And in a way, looking at American culture from an outside standpoint, that might be true. I'm just and I'm not telling you, yes, he's right or no, he's not, because obviously I'm not looking at it from his perspective. And I'm an American sitting here born and raised. Uh, I'm going to give you just one more concrete that will, you know, I think have kind of a, a, an effect on you. It affected me that might make you think that he's right. Uh, as I said, Breitbart, I don't think they should have accepted the resignation. So that's what I've got on Milo. Quinn in the chat room says, ironically, the Catholic Church sometimes defends its clergy by calling their behavior homosexual as opposed to pedophilia. In some cases, this is true. You know, nonetheless, if they're taking a vow of celibacy and this is, you know, they're breaking it, they're being dishonest. They want to be a member of the clergy and yet engage in some sort of sexual behavior. So even if supposing that they don't go after minors, you know, that they have relationships with older, you know, kids, they'd st- I'd still call them kids, right? Even if they're 17 or whatever, even if they're doing that, they're engaged in something that's a bit dishonest. Um, okay. Now, let's see here. Who is this? He has the benefit of a FOI, a foil that many of us lack. Oh, I don't know who you're talking about here. Um, Okay, so let me continue on. Let me go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com again. And the next story that I want to talk about, which happens within the same week, is the smear of PewDiePie. Now, I didn't know anything about PewDiePie myself before this. I mean, I think I've heard of him, but I I knew very, very little about him. He is an outspoken YouTube personality. He's got this regular show, millions and millions of followers. Apparently he's the most popular YouTube personality out there. And the question is, is he a racist? Is he anti-Semitic in particular? That's the question that's been raised recently. And the way that it's been raised is similar to the way that this question about Milo advocating pedophilia is similar to the way that it's been raised by taking the poor guy out of context, 
you know, putting together some different things. This one started with an article in the Wall Street Journal. And I mean, imagine this, right? Because, you know, again, I'm going to talk to you and show you that this whole thing arises by taking this PewDiePie guy out of context. We can talk about whether his humor is justified or not, but, you know, this is the headline in the Wall Street Journal article that started all of this. It says, Disney severs ties with YouTube star PewDiePie after anti-Semitic posts. So already you've got engaged, as far as I can tell, in a logical fallacy here. You're assuming that these posts of PewDiePie are anti-Semitic, and then you're proceeding to report that Disney severed ties because of these posts, which are indeed anti-Semitic. Uh, when in fact they aren't. Uh, what did he do? You know, he's got this show, and I don't, I don't respect this guy intellectually as much as Milo, as far as I can tell, just from the little bit that I've watched. He seems okay. Um, he's going to be liberal, so I'm probably not going to like him that much anyway, as much as Milo, which is more, you know, he's more conservative libertarian. What this guy did is he took one of these sites that will say, you know, I think it's five. I don't know if it's Fiverr that he did, but I've heard of these sites like Fiverr. Um, so don't hold me accountable. It's maybe not Fiverr. That, but there's a number of sites where people will do little odd jobs for you for $5. And his thing was, it's kind of a stunt. He's going to press the limits of this. And he says, well, can I pay $5 to have these guys hold up a sign? And if you look at the story, you know, even above the, the paywall prompt right at the wall street journal you can see the photo capture from the video these poor guys and i don't know some other country you know because again this is all outsourced stuff they're holding up a sign that says death to all jews okay so he he's saying you know let's push the limits of this what can i get these people to do for five dollars would they hold up this sign that says death to all Jews. And sure enough, they do. And then he puts a video about this, like how ridiculous is it that you can get people to do this horrible stuff for five bucks, right? That's what he did. But what they're doing is they're calling it anti-Semitic. And then apparently they've also, you know, the, he says there's three different journalists at the wall street journal, this guy, Rolf Winkler, Nickus and, and Ben Fritz. I watched, PewDiePie's own video defending himself, um, which you can also do. I've got it linked at the blog at don'tletitgo.com. But, you know, he's saying, look, these people, they don't like the fact that he has made so much money on YouTube. They don't like the fact, these mainstream media outlets, that they are being you know, displaced by YouTube celebrities like him or other people, you know, they don't like Milo either. They're happy to engage in a smear of someone like him. And he gives other examples of where he has clearly been taken out of context. And, you know, they're using these places where he's been taken out of context to imply that, or actually to demonstrate that he's anti-Semitic. So for example, he did a video talking about the fact that he was being maligned by the mainstream media and he was making fun of this. And he put himself in a military uniform watching a Hitler video 
as if, you know, he's really sitting there in admiration of Hitler or something like that. And he's making the point that this is ridiculous, that this is not him. And they even take that as, you know, somehow he's, and I mean, you could say, okay, well, in today's short attention span culture, that somebody might tune into YouTube and not be paying attention to the context. And then they'll get this little snippet of him watching Hitler, you know, in a mocking admir, you know, uh, admiring way that he's watching. Maybe people would take it out of context and they'd say, Oh, he admires Hitler. If they're stupid, I guess. Um, But I doubt it. You know, I think people, if they're fans of his, they're watching his show. Uh, maybe if they say, oh, gosh, I saw this, is he anti-Semitic? At least maybe they'll do a Google search and say, is he anti-Semitic? And then come up on him defending himself and realize that, no, he's not. He completely debunks the whole thing in, in his video as well. But what do you have? Again, you have people taking this guy out of context in order to smear him, in order to try to take away his platform and audience. And again, if you you know, don't be cowardly like this. If you want somebody to be discredited, you think, you know, they think, clearly they think. And, and he said that there was a Wall Street Journal interview that he did way back when that, you know, clearly they see him as a threat. There was somebody that he quoted that said, you know, if this guy PewDiePie is the top YouTube celebrity, then our culture's in deep trouble. Suppose you think this and suppose it's actually true. Again, I only watched a little bit of it. I'm not super impressed with him. You know, Milo's a little bit more formidable. Well, I would say a lot more formidable based on what I saw. But, you know, suppose you think that. Then you should address the substance of it. You should compete. You should go onto YouTube and make your videos and go out there head-to-head with this guy. This guy has made a name for himself. There's a whole bunch of people and content and stuff. Now, we could say that the biggest problem, you know, to all of this, if you say – that our culture is so debased and we've voted for Trump and PewDiePie is the top celebrity on Twitter and everybody's, you know, loves Milo when there are more articulate, more principled advocates for freedom of expression than is Milo, right? I, all this I could accept. Maybe the most fundamental answer to this, where, where do you start? You start with early education that we need to get government out of schools. We need to move away from the you know, progressive education model and move more toward a Montessori type model in education. And that's how you really are going to change a culture from the ground up, almost literally, right? If you think of a child starting out crawling and standing and walking, et cetera, that's the answer. The answer is not to look at the side effects of our terrible culture and decide, oh, well, you know, pragmatically in the moment, I'm just going to get rid of these people. I'm going to diffuse these people by smearing them, taking them out of context, right? That's not going to work. That is not going to work. It's not honest. You're not going to obtain a value by this. If anything, I mean, like I said, I, you know, I didn't know about PewDiePie before. So, I, so far, I haven't been super impressed with him, but am I motivated to check out a little bit more of what he has to say and see what sort of value he provides? Sure, I am. I'm going to check out a little bit more. So those of you who wanted to silence him, you're not succeeding. You're not succeeding. You shouldn't be able to succeed by these smear jobs. So that's 
what I've got about both of those. If you want to call in and talk about them or, like I said, go to don'tletitgo.com and check out some of the other things I've got, 760-888-5817 is the number. Um, Rob says, how dare PewDiePie think he can control the narrative? That's our job. Yeah, exactly. And, Rob, that is, of course, I think you're probably over at the program notes talking about what I've got lined up next, right? So again, go to don'tletitgo.com. And the next story, thanks to Mark Natickman, is an MSNBC anchor on The Morning Joe, Mika uh, Brzezinski, I think might be how you pronounce it, I hope, (laughs) that she let slip the awesome unspoken truth that the media's job is to, quote, actually control exactly what people think. And the clip that this Zero Hedge article gives you, it's a little YouTube clip of that segment, it's them complaining about Trump, right? Because Trump, he's putting alternative facts out there. And I, and I talked about that whole alternative fact, facts thing here on the show. They didn't really mean alternative facts. They meant looking at different data sets to prove the same thing. And it was Again, taken out of context and smeared. Media does this stuff. Um, but, you know, she's saying, look, that Trump, and in a way Trump is, right? Trump is trying to control the narrative. And she's objecting to it because Trump as president, he's not supposed to control the narrative. That's their job. And the way she puts it, though, you know, that he's trying to control exactly what people think. And in the little part of the clip at the very end that's actually cut off, you can hear her say, she's starting to say, that's our job. (laughs) That it's the media's job to control exactly what people think. She let that slip. And then apparently she wasn't taking a task for it. The other guy on Morning Joe comes back with something about how, um, you know, Trump is – you know, a lot, he's, he's, he's like Mussolini and Lenin because of the tactics that he's engaged in and trying to shut the media down, et cetera. And maybe he is, but the point is, shouldn't you have addressed that very revealing little slip by your co-host when she's saying, oh, it's our job to control. Um, now, you know, I want to go back for a second, actually, because there was one thing that I wanted to add with, you know, before we talked about the MSNBC anchor. So this is not your fault, Rob. I should have been looking at my notes as well. But yeah, Rob was anticipating that story. Um, I talked about this a little earlier show. I've got this Libertarian Theories of the Law seminar that I'm teaching up at the law school. And I talked on one of the earlier shows about a John Stuart Mill essay that appears in the reader that I'm using for that course And the essay is called On Individuality. And, you know, Mill is talking from a utilitarian perspective. He has a different philosophical foundation from us. Nonetheless, I've often found many things that Mill says to be of value. I don't find his arguments for them to be solid, right, because they're on this utilitarian foundation. But nonetheless, I've found... Um, a lot of what he said to be solid. Let me go ahead and get to uh, of individuality. And there's a particular passage that I wanted to point out to you. He's talking about 
you know, the value in a culture of people being individuals going out there and trying all different sorts of lifestyles and promoting all different types of ideas and stuff. And that if you don't have people out there being eccentric, being different, pushing boundaries, et cetera, that you are not going to have innovation. You're not going to let genius thrive. You're not going to experience the benefits that come from creative genius. Um, He says, and I, you know, I'm just taking a little bit out of this out of this context. He says, it seems that when the opinions of the masses of merely average men everywhere become or are becoming the dominant power, the counterpoise and corrective to that tendency would be the more and more pronounced individuality of those who stand on the higher eminences of thought. Now, here he's talking about people in the higher eminences of thought. So obviously, I don't necessarily think PewDiePie or even Milo are at the higher eminences of thought, but continue with me here on this passage. He says, it is in these circumstances, most especially, that exceptional individuals, instead of being deterred, should be encouraged in acting differently from the mass. He says, in other times, there was no advantage in their doing so unless they acted not only differently, but better. But then he's talking, you know, he's talking about you know, his time period, but apply it today. He says, in this age, the mere example of nonconformity, the mere refusal to bend the knee to custom is itself a service. He says, precisely because the tyranny of opinion is such as to make eccentricity a reproach, it is desirable in order to break through that tyranny that people should be eccentric. Eccentricity has always abounded when and where strength of character has abounded, and the amount of eccentricity in the society has generally been proportional to the amount of genius, mental vigor, and moral courage which it contained. He says that so few now dare to be eccentric marks the chief danger of the time, end quote. And again, he's coming from his utilitarian perspective, but I ask you to consider if we're in a society where eccentrics like PewDiePie and like Milo are being shut down with dishonest smear jobs, is that not another danger of our time? Not because it's government censorship, but because it is private citizens and organizations, et cetera, participating in what I call a culture of censorship. So, That's my little spiel from Mill, and I'm going to bring out the Libertarian Reader again later in the show. Um, So that's liars, right? So we've got liars in terms of smearing Milo and PewDiePie. We have liars, admitted liars on MSNBC saying that they're going to be telling us what to think. Now, if they were just giving us the truth, then we could decide whether to accept the truth or not. But if they're actually trying to control what we think in a way that would mean that they are in effect being dishonest, that they're giving us something more than just the truth. They're trying to tell us what, you know, what interpretations we should make, what principles we should draw, what inductions we should make from, from the news. And, and that is itself dishonest. They're saying, look, you know, they're someone trying to actually manipulate the narrative for their own gain, regardless of whether what they're doing is telling the the truth or not. Um, 
so the thing I want to talk about in general before we go into some of the dishonesty committed by government agencies and agents, I've got a couple stories on that. Because this has to do with a culture of censorship, this has to do with private media outlets, this has to do with private individuals, private organizations engaging in dishonesty, thinking that they're going to gain a value from it. I just wanted to highlight a little bit about the topic of honesty from an objectivist perspective from the philosophy of Ayn Rand. And I've talked about this on the show before, but I always like when I have the opportunity because Rand's take on honesty is unique. Uh, other philosophical views, religious views, et cetera, they take honesty in a very sort of pragmatic way and also, or it's either pragmatic in the sense of, you know, can you get away with telling a lie with respect to other people or other people going to find it out, you know, or are you going to um, suffer any negative consequences from it, you know, because other people are going to reject you or whatever it is. Uh, there's that view out there. There's also the view that you have a duty to be honest to other people. It's disembodied in some way. It might be a categorical imperative a la Kant, or it could just be, you know, that God tells you thou shalt be honest. And so therefore you, you should, and if not the horrors of the afterlife await you. But from the objectivist perspective, we tie honesty to the functioning of our rational faculty. And if you want to read the full validation on that, I've put a link to Leonard Peikoff's book, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, and it's on pages 267 to 269 in that book that he talks about the fact that, you know, if you are dishonest, to the extent that you're dishonest, you've put yourself at war with reality. Let me go ahead and grab my copy real quick. I was looking at it before the show. One sec. Okay, I think I'm on page 269 where I was finding uh, some stuff that was that was valuable here. Um, yeah, I, I mean, really, what it what it the whole thing is from the objectivist perspective. Actually, I'm not going to go ahead and read. I'm just going to talk about it. The whole proper functioning of our rational faculty, which is our means of survival depends on having a kind of unimpeded contact with reality. And to the extent that you are dishonest, you are to that extent putting a little wall up between your consciousness and, and reality. And part of reality, of course, is things that we have going on in our own minds, you know, our own past, things that, you know, we evaluate from things that we've done and all that kind of stuff too. This is all part of reality. And, you know, to the extent that you are not honest with yourself primarily about the world, about you, about everything else, right? You are kind of putting that barrier between you and reality and you are going to affect your ability to perceive reality draw conclusions on the basis of what you perceive and act to further your own rational values in, in your life. So it's a very selfish thing to be honest for objectivism. It's not a duty to somebody else. And also importantly, it's not this idea of, Oh, well, you'll never get away with it because, you know, reality is interconnected and it's eventually going to come back to bite you. That's true. But 
most fundamentally for objectivism, honesty is about maintaining that contact, that interface with the facts of reality. Um, and that's what I like about the objectivist view of honesty, you know, this idea that you cannot gain a value by trying to fake reality. These people who want to shut down Milo and they want to shut down PewDiePie, they think that they're obtaining that value. First of all, I don't think they're going to. They're giving these guys more exposure. But even if they did, they would know in their minds that it's not that they've defeated them in the world of competing ideas like an honest person would have, that they did it by a dishonest smear, by taking the guys out of context and saying that they advocated for things that they did not. And just to that little extent, you know, just as like I talked about um, attack watch, you know, as an example of four stops thinking, it's not going to shut people up attack watch necessarily, but to, you know, to the extent that anybody has experienced a little bit of question about attack watch and Obama administration is going to come after you and stick the IRS on you and the whatever. Um, if you experience that in your mind, you experience a little bit of this idea of four stop thinking. Similarly with these people who do these dishonest smears, they will experience in their own mind just that little bit of disconnect. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that Leonard Peikoff is talking about in that passage on honesty, that it's the functioning of our consciousness that we very selfishly should want to preserve. That's what the virtue of honesty is about. Now, let's see. Oh, we're still talking about the issue of culture of censorship, not censorship, but dereliction of duty, says Quinn. Yeah, I would say a lot of these people are engaging in that to the, to the extent that they see themselves as public intellectuals or journalists. In the case of the Wall Street Journal, they should know a lot better than to engage in dishonest smears out there. Okay, so that's what I had to say. And, and the reason, again, I do this little interlude, A, kind of put your heavy philosophy in the middle of the concrete stories, and B, we're about to talk about government. And I have less optimism about people who work for government at the high level being coachable in any way, shape, or form. So let's go on to government dishonesty. And as I said, go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com if you want to check out the program notes for today's show. The next story that I have is about the Oroville Dam. As far as I know, the dam has not failed yet, but it's come dangerously close to failing. You guys in the chat room can correct me about that if I'm wrong. I'm trying to get back to the place on my blog, but MSNBC or Zero Hedge is holding me up on my iPad here. Let's get back over there. Okay. So the story is from the Oroville Dam that feds and state officials ignored the warnings that came up 12 years ago. And what I want to highlight for you is the dishonesty that took place here, the misrepresentation of the facts that happened. So as it went, apparently 12 years ago, there were some groups, you know, environmental groups, but they went ahead and filed a motion with the federal government in 2005 
there was going to be a relicensing process that the Oroville Dam had to go through. And they were urging the federal officials to require that the emergency spillway of the dam be armored with concrete rather than remain as simply an earthen hillside. And they explained how there was going to be a loss of crest control, some technical term, uh, if they didn't do this. They, and the place that they appealed to, you know, have your alphabet soup lesson of the day, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is the one that they appealed to. The FERC rejected the request, however, because why? The state, California State Department of Water Resources, in addition to the water agencies that would likely have had to pay the bill for the upgrades that were requested, they said that these upgrades were unnecessary. The agencies involved included the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. This provides water to 19 million people in Los Angeles, San Diego, and other areas, along with the State Water Contractors, which is an association of 27 agencies that buy water from the state of California through the State Water Project. All of these people are government bureaucrats or government-connected bureaucrats, and they all said this danger that you're talking about, this danger of, quote, loss of crest control, not needed. You don't need to worry about this at all. And, in fact, it looks like they were wrong. So government bureaucrats lying, you know, state government bureaucrats lying to the feds, feds accepting the lie. They go ahead. They take the path of least resistance. Who knows, you know, what sort of meta deals go on between the federal government and the state government. And they went ahead and put it through. And that is part of what led to this mess, all of these people having to evacuate because of the danger posed if the Oroville Dam fails. So that's what I'm talking about, dam liars, lying about the dam. And then finally, in terms of government dishonesty, we have, as I said, this very interesting and kind of horrific story about the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and then I think they added something else to that, but it, you know, we always think of it as ATF, like explosives or something they've added to that. New York Times reporting today, February 22nd, I'm not going to give you the whole story because A, that would be a violation of their paywall, and B, it gets pretty complex, but I'm going to give you the essence of it. They say, working from an office suite behind a Burger King in Southern Virginia, operatives used a web of shadowy cigarette sales to funnel tens of millions of dollars into a secret bank account. They weren't known smugglers, but rather agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. The operation, not authorized under Justice Department rules, gave agents an off-the-books way to finance undercover investigations and pay informants without the usual cumbersome paperwork and close oversight, according to court records and people close to the operation. So why do they do this? They do this because they can earn a little bit of money that isn't on the government books, and the theory, at least, is that they were just using this money to engage in their investigations. There's another part of the thing that talks about that they used it to buy iPads to bribe informants and all this kind of stuff, right? Um, agents are finding themselves constrained by the rules, you know, the usual cumbersome paperwork and close oversight. 
wah is all I have to say. Wah, you know, cry me a river, get the little mini violin out, all of that stuff. Why? Um, it really comes home to you that these people have absolutely no excuse for what they've done. When you see the sort of thing that they are investigating and enforcing, right? Skipping way down in the article, the basics of cigarette smuggling are simple. So why, why, you know, why do they have to smuggle cigarettes? Why is, why is this a big deal? Listen to this. Each state sets its tobacco taxes. Buying cigarettes in low-tax states like Virginia and secretly selling them in higher-tax states like New York generates large profits. More complicated schemes have shipped cigarettes to Indian reservations where they are not taxed and then rerouted them for sale on the black market. (laughs) So the reason that all of this government agent subterfuge has existed is because of government theft in the form of taxes on cigarettes. Now, you and I could have a whole debate about whether in today's day and age where we know the dangers of cigarettes for so many people, there are tons of people who smoke into their 90s and never have lung cancer. I don't know how they do it, but for a lot of people, cigarette smoke is a tremendous danger. Um, We could talk about the morality of this, but point being, should the government be coming in and setting all these taxes and then creating this temptation for a black market on cigarettes. No, but this is the reason that all of this happened in the first place is because this opportunity exists. Therefore, some people on a quote black market will, you know, exploit that opportunity. And now the agents have come in and apparently some of them have enriched themselves to the tune of a million dollars or more as a result of this tax scheme. It's all about taxes on cigarettes. Horrific. So how do they do it? Your brain cracks when you think about this. Um, Some of the schemes of fraud that I've ever read about in law school or otherwise, it's hard to get your head around how you have to kind of structure your transaction in order to perpetrate the fraud. But here's the passage, the relevant passage of the article. They said it worked like this. An export company working with the ATF placed an order for cigarettes to be shipped internationally, thus not subject to American taxes. Big South, some, you know, tax organization, or not tax, but, you know, cigarette purchasing organization, Big South would instead ship bottled water and potato chips, making it look as if cigarettes had been exported. So they're, you know, making it look like a cigarette export transaction, but instead they're shipping bottled water and potato chips. They're not actually shipping the cigarettes. You, you might think if you're going to do this, you're going to ship them overseas and then ship them back in some complex way. No, no, you just don't even ship them. You make it look like they've been shipped and then you're able to keep them here and then sell them for cheaper. Otherwise, it says Mr. Carpenter and Mr. Small, I guess the ATF people would then buy the tobacco at a slight markup through a private bank account. Lastly, they would sell the tobacco to Big South again at a markup. It says because they had authority to buy on behalf of the tobacco cooperative, Carpenter and Small simply sold products to themselves, the farmers wrote in court documents. All of these transactions occurred on paper. The cigarettes never left the Virginia warehouse. Quote, it's what I saw with my own eyes, end quote, said Brandon Moore, the warehouse manager and one of the people who discussed the transactions in the case. 
their accounts fit with descriptions in court records. Mr. Moore said he was aware of the ATF operation but became troubled by it as he learned more. It shouldn't be going on, he says, even if it is the ATF, end quote, he said. You know, he's still got this idea, you know, ATF, the government agent, they can do no wrong. So many of us are more skeptical, and particularly if it is the agency enforcing a law that itself is just theft and immoral and everything else. Not just even if it's the ATF, even more so because it's the ATF, this shouldn't be going on. Anyway, continuing with the article, they say in one deal described in the lawsuit, the informants bought tobacco at $15 a carton and sold it to U.S. Tobacco at $17.50. The profit, about $519,000, went into what is known as a, quote, management account. That account, while controlled by Mr. Carpenter and Mr. Small, helped pay for ATF investigations. How did they spend it? They say that what they told him, they told uh, Mr. Moore, the warehouse manager, what to buy on the company's credit card. For instance, he recalled spending tens of thousands of dollars at Best Buy on iPads, televisions, and other gifts to curry favor with potential criminal targets. So this is how they engaged in their investigation, uh, putting together these fraudulent transactions. But this is the thing, right? Eventually, one of these tobacco organizations came forth to and reported to the government And if you forward to the very end of the article, you find out what happened to them. U.S. Tobacco, right? U.S. Tobacco was trying to come clean about this. And they figure, you know, you report it to the government and the government's going to take care of the bad guys doing these invalid transactions and everything else. It says three years into the lawsuit, U.S. Tobacco still cannot disentangle itself from the government, The cooperative recently told a judge that it was under investigation by the Treasury Department. It says all those secret tobacco sales, it turned out, should have been taxed, and the government wants its money. So then, you know, when you are honest and you come forward and say, look, these government agents have been doing this to us for years and we want to tell you about it, you get punished by the very government that you know, whose agents were involved in this dishonesty in the first place. Really, really disgusting. Um, Selfishness in the chat room says the Fed's getting around another check on its power. Well, almost. It's going to be interesting to see what happens to this under a Trump administration. Now, New York Times has reported it, like I said. You know, we're not necessarily that surprised if you've got dishonesty on behalf of government agents. One of the things that we, you know, people who study objectivism subscribe to is this idea of unity of the virtues so that if you are wholeheartedly on board with some of the things that the government does in terms of engaging in theft or telling people how to run their lives in an unjust way, that probably cannot help but percolate into other areas of of your life where, you know, you're just not going to have that much of a problem with making people suffer from this whole dishonest scheme that you've engaged in. Um, So that's the ATF. And I would say in a way that defeats, I mean, that kind of beats all because here you have government agents and government supposedly works for us engaging in a fraudulent scheme 
in order to enforce laws based on theft and the people who come forward and try to seek some justice from all this, they themselves are punished in the form of having the Treasury come after them for more taxes. Uh, when I read this this morning, one of the very first things that I thought about was the case. You probably remember this case. Uh, in 2014, Eric Garner in New York City died uh, after suffering from a chokehold. And why was he in a chokehold? Because he was selling single cigarettes illegally. You weren't supposed to be able to sell a cigarette, I forget there's a technical name for it, some special name for, you know, selling onesies, I can't remember. But if you're selling a single cigarette as opposed to a whole pack in New York, that's supposed to be illegal. They're not able to get their tax money as much. This poor guy died because of the enforcement of this kind of stuff. And now you're seeing more carnage, not actual death, but stress, having the U.S. Treasury Department come after you and stuff. Why? Because of government dishonestly enforcing these so-called laws. So that's what I've, what I've got there. If you do want to call in and comment, like I said, on any of these stories, 760-888-5817 is the number at which to do so. What I you know, kind of wanted to go on to because of this is something that we talked about in my Libertarian Theories of the Law class yesterday. The number of readings all centered on the idea of the power that government gives people like those working for the ATF, that it's going to necessarily be corrupting in a certain way, that government, in, in essence, is not a necessary good as in objectivism we hold, that in fact... At best, it's a necessary evil, and it might not even be necessary. There might be a better and, and preferable way to handle what this one libertarian hobby calls the social ordering problem. And, um, you know, in, in particular, this idea that the government has the power to tax, right, and the power to set the taxes that insofar is even if you say, okay, well, the government is just going to provide security services, what Hoppy argues in his piece, and I put a link to it in the, in the program notes, what Hoppy argues in his piece is that because the government has a monopoly, then just like all other monopolies, the government is going to inevitably start providing lower quality security services at an increasing higher, higher, higher cost um, that this is just true of all monopolies. It's going to be true of government as well. So that's one thing to, to think about. I end up rejecting it. Hoppy ends up defining government as including in the nature of all government itself, the ability to impose involuntary taxes, you know, compulsory taxation. And as Ayn Rand has discussed, you could, likely finance all the proper functions of government, police, course, uh, courts, and military through voluntary means. And then you wouldn't have this ability of government to itself set the levels of taxation in a way that makes it you know, compulsory and not within our control. Uh, I think there's a, there's a number of kind of package deals that I think Hoppy does sell you in the article. But what it's good for is it is good for pointing out the article that Hobby has here, it's good for pointing out 
some of the problems that exist with government, the opportunities for the type of corruption that we see in that article about the ATF. I mean, here we have a government agency that is enforcing laws that shouldn't even exist. And, you know, the agency has gotten so bureaucratic and so overblown that they are tempted to go outside the rules and engage in fraudulent transactions, supposedly in the cause of more efficiently doing their job so that they don't have all that cumbersome paperwork and everything else. And there they are. They're just, they're just doing it. They, you know, they, they're tempted to do this and then they engage in these transactions that harm people. Um, yeah, Hoppy's, you know, Hoppy's solution, he thinks that we should have a private law society and he explains how he thinks that's going to work. But I think in the end, it is going to fall to the criticism that Ayn Rand had, which is that if I hire security agency A and you hire security agency B, then what happens when you and I have a disagreement and are you going to have security agency A and security agency B fight it out on the street gang warfare style? It seems like not a good thing. Um, But in terms of what I was talking about earlier with Milo and Milo had said in his press conference that foreigners were in some ways maybe better able to perceive the nature of American culture, maybe some of the dangers that exist for America better than we are. I was struck because of the connection with one of the other articles that we talked about in my seminar yesterday by Alexis de Tocqueville. And let me find it. Oh, yeah, here it is. What sort of despotism democratic nations have to fear? And he's saying that democratic nations, because of this idea that, you know, you've got basically majorities voting for things every so often for the officials. And somehow, I guess, the fact that they vote for things makes them think that somehow they've had a role in these figures who are controlling their lives, et cetera, that there's a particular danger of a culture going in a particular, uh, use that word particular too much there. Um, you know, there's, there's an enhanced danger of a culture going in a direction that is particularly ominous. And so this is, I'm just giving you some highlights of the warning from Alexis de Tocqueville. If you want to read more then, as I said, you could get that reader that I've been using in the class. It's Boaz from Cato, libertarian reader. Here's from de Tocqueville. He says, it would seem that if despotism were to be established amongst the democratic nations of our days, it might assume a different character than just some sort of you know, overbearing tyranny. He said, it would be more extensive and more mild. It would degrade men without tormenting them. And he says what he wants to do in this little essay, he wants to trace the novel features under which despotism may appear in the world. And when he's talking about, you know, the type of government that we have, just see if this doesn't ring true for you. He says above the race of men stands an immense and tutelary power, which takes upon itself alone to secure their gratifications and to watch over their fate. He says that power is absolute, minute, regular, provident, and mild. 
It would be like the authority of a parent if, like that authority, its object was to prepare men for manhood. But it seeks, on the contrary, to keep them in perpetual childhood. It is well content that the people should rejoice, provided that they think of nothing but rejoicing. This just sounds like 1984, right? He says, for their happiness, such a government willingly labors, but it chooses to be the sole agent and the only arbiter of that happiness. It provides for their security, foresees and supplies their necessities, facilitates their pleasures, manages their principal concerns, directs their industry, regulates the descent of, of property, and subdivides their inheritances. What remains but to spare them all the care of thinking and all the trouble of living. Continuing, de Tocqueville says, thus it every day renders the exercise of free agency of man less useful and less frequent. It circumscribes the will within a narrower range and gradually robs a man of all the uses of himself. Says, uh, it's going to stupefy people. I'm skipping a bit. He says, till each nation is reduced to be nothing better than a flock of timid and industrious animals of which the government is the shepherd. And he says, our contemporaries are constantly excited by two conflicting passions. They want to be led and they wish to remain free. And he says, as they cannot destroy either one or the other of these contrary propensities, they, try, they strive to satisfy both at once. And he basically says that you can't do this. And in terms of the fact that we feel like we choose our leaders every four years, we get to vote, you know, we can vote for Hillary or for Trump, right? Skipping to the end of this piece, he says, it is in vain to summon a people which has been rendered so dependent on the central power to choose from time to time the representatives of that power. This rare and brief exercise of their free choice, however important it may be, will not prevent them from gradually losing the faculties of thinking, feeling, and acting for themselves, and thus gradually falling below the level of humanity. Uh, and then going back in the piece comes the quote that I tweeted out yesterday. De Tocqueville says, he says, the nature of him I am to obey signifies less to me than the fact of extorted obedience. End quote. So we have this problem of extorted obedience in our country. We have a government that's increasingly more powerful. We have just one story today that, you know, tells you what the Bureau of Tobacco, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms is doing, engaging in fraudulent transactions to enforce laws that are legalized theft, tax laws. That's what our country has come to. And so then you can start to realize the necessity of getting back to a limited government, a government of very limited powers. And you can see the urgency of doing that. As I said, you know, what's your insertion point? Probably early education. Um, all of us, of course, can feel free to engage in whatever realm of endeavor is, we're most impassioned about. But it might be that we need to start with getting government out of education entirely. And this is why I see, you know, Trump's appointment of DeVos 
yeah, school choice, but school choice on behalf of religious indoctrination as opposed to others. They're going to put, you know, they're going to get rid of Common Core, but they're going to institute new higher national standards. We need government out of education. We need education to be free. We need to, as a culture, move away from progressive education and embrace something that institutes independent use or not institutes, (laughs) encourages, facilitates. How about that? Institutes is a horrible you know, kind of uh, dictatorial term, uh, but you know, it encourages and facilitates the independent development of the child's mind. Something like, and probably Montessori. Montessori is the best that I know of. I'm not an expert in education, though, so you have to talk to those those people. But you know, we are we're it, we're in the way. We we are uh, that culture. I think that De Tocqueville is describing. And is it because he was a foreigner that was able to perceive this danger? Uh, Rand came here. She was a foreigner. She was very prophetic. Again, you guys can have a beer and, and debate it or something. I don't know. But there's a few concretes that I that I gave you there as examples. Again, 760-888-5817. If you do want to call in, you better do it soon because I don't have that much more time on the clock here. As you've noticed, I haven't had any problem filling the time today. I prepared a lot for today's show. It just happened to fall on my lap. Uh, But I do thank um, a listener, Daniel, like I said, for giving me the original seed for the show, which is the whole smear job of Milo and PewDiePie, because that was so important uh, as the starting point for today's show. Uh, Going back to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, what else do I have? Um, Oh, this. So Rob Abiera sent me through the Don't Let It Go Unheard page a piece from the Volokh Conspiracy, staying true to principle in the age of Trump. And again, one of the things that we have to do if we are going to get out of this horrible mess that we're in is that we cannot sacrifice our principles, our principles of government being limited to the function of protecting individual rights. We can't do that in the age of Trump. Just because Trump won and Hillary lost, therefore you're going to be changing all of your views. That's what this is about. Uh, Ilya Soman is a libertarian academic, and he's talking about how some liberals are now liking him a lot more because he is criticizing Trump, and many of his conservative friends have decided they don't like him anymore, but he hasn't really changed his views He's always been the same, and he's sort of dismayed that, in particular, some conservatives appear to have changed their opinion in light of Trump being elected, and I I think that's true. One thing that he did say is that in light of some experiences, he did change his view on a couple of issues, and he puts a link to that, but again, I'm of the opinion that you know, if, if you change your views because of experience that you have in the real world, that's not changing your basic fundamentals, right? That is you being open to evidence out in the real world and using reason to you know, decide what it is you actually believe on an ongoing basis. So I, I wouldn't say, oh, you know, he's inconsistent. Obviously, I'm making a parallel back to your own and the attacks on your own because supposedly he changed his view on immigration. I don't think that that's the case. He's applying the principle to the evidence that's presented to him. Um, 
He says the fact that he had shifted his views on a few issues is not what stimulated either my new fans praise or my new critics ire. Um, he's talking about, I notice I'm saying um a lot today. Maybe it's because I just have so much that I wanted to cover. I'm overwhelmed here. He's talking about and praising someone named Stevens, who is a conservative opponent of Trump, Brett Stevens of the Wall Street Journal. And he says, people like Stevens stand out because they have put principles ahead of partisan bias. He says, even before the rise of Trump, growing partisan bias and hatred of the opposition led many people to excuse behavior by their own party's leaders that they would never tolerate from the opposing party. Many conservative Republicans are falling prey to such bias under Trump. I have to stop here and I have to you hear the sigh in my voice. I'm talking about Cruz. Cruz has been such a disappointment to me in this regard because he has fallen prey to this. And again, you know, when I'm revisiting the topic of honesty today and I know that Cruz is probably trying to compartmentalize some of the things that he said about the principles that underlie our founding. He knows in his mind that Trump is violating some of those, and yet he's out there shilling for Trump on his Facebook. I, I'm coming close to not following him anymore on Facebook, and I'm really sad about that. Anyway, um, continuing with this piece by Ilya Selman. This is from Washington Post, the Volat Conspiracy blog, which is a great blog. He says, uh, numerous liberal Democrats did the same under Obama, you know, gave up their principles as uh, he says, when they tolerated or even supported his starting two wars without congressional authorization. Yeah, definitely noticed that. And he says, again, continuing with Selman here, he says, it is to some extent understandable if politicians trim their sails to whichever direction their party's wind blows. After all, they want to stay in power and are afraid of being ostracized within their party. Interesting metaphor, right? Trim their sails. But he means being dishonest. And is it really understandable for anybody to be dishonest, given what I've said earlier about honesty and the importance of it? I don't think so. He says, but intellectuals, activists, and ordinary voters often behave in much the same way. And I've had you know, people in my own life, some people I'm close to, behave this way about Trump and it's dismaying to me. He says, uh, even though these intellectuals, activists, and ordinary voters, he says, even though they have far less to fear in the way of tangible personal costs, he says, being a loyal member of Team Red or Team Blue is such an important part of many people's identity that it often takes precedence over other supposedly more fundamental principles. And he's saying these should be fundamental principles for you. He says, unlike Stevens, who is a longtime Republican, I can't claim any special virtue in resisting this tendency because I was never a committed partisan in the first place. He says, it isn't psychologically difficult for me to either the GOP or the Democrats on many occasions when they do things that run counter to the principles I espouse. And he says, things are much tougher for the many people who, often for understandable reasons, do see themselves as loyal Democrats or Republicans, or at least have a deep hostility to whichever party they oppose. And this, you know, would characterize some of my friends as well. Hillary, bad, you know, bad. She's bad. Um, and in some ways I understood that. And, and in some ways I didn't want to vote for Hillary because of that. In California, I was relieved of the necessity to make any real choice anyway. 
says, in, la- in latter case, partyism can lead them to avoid criticizing their own party, lest it give ammunition to the opposing one, which by assumption is much worse. And he says, the good news is we don't have to behave this way. Even politicians sometimes rise above partisanship. And he gives a shout out to Justin Amash. He says he stands out as a principled opponent of Trump. And he says there's also on the Democrat side, Tim Kaine, who was highly critical of the unconstitutional wars initiated by Obama. He says, those of us who aren't politicians have even less excuse for indulging partisan bias. Before reflexively following a party leader wherever he wants to go, we should ask whether his course really is consistent with the principles we espouse. Before condemning dissenters from the party line as sellouts, we should consider the possibility that they are actually the ones staying true to their principles. Soman kind of concludes in a a depressing way. He says, I'm not optimistic that we will overcome the dangers of partisan bias anytime soon. Far from it. Even if we do, there are a lot of other ways in which voters and intellectuals' political views are influenced by ignorance and illogic. He gives you some links so that you can really get yourself depressed. He says, but the, the beginning of wisdom is to at least recognize that we have a problem and try to reduce it. So, you know, he says, right, because he's a tenured academic, he doesn't have anything to lose. And so, therefore, it's easy for him to be honest. The quote from Rand that comes to mind is, you know, um, I'm not brave enough to be a coward. I see the consequence too clearly. The consequence of being dishonest, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens to Ted Cruz, for example, in his, in his future career. Not because, again, not because other people are going to hold him accountable. You know, when, when Ted Cruz came out with his sort of lukewarm endorsement of Trump, and many of us were disappointed, all these people were saying, you know, your career is ruined. And what they meant by that is your career is ruined because we, the voters, are going to hold you accountable. We're going to make you pay for it. And that's not the reason. It's that Cruz is impairing his own rational faculty. And many of us were already, you know, a bit skeptical about his ability to maintain, on the one hand, his relig- you know, religiosity, and on the other hand, his defense and understanding of constitutional principles, the principle of individual rights, freedom of expression, a proper foreign policy, all the things that we loved him for. We were already concerned about his ability, you know, to maintain his wonderfully functioning mind under that pressure. And I'm even more skeptical now that he seems to be a shill. So um, that's what I had to say about that. Motive Power says, I'm starting to like Justin Amash better than Cruz. I sure like Justin Amash better on privacy issues. I can tell you that. So I will probably end up shifting over to him and I hope he doesn't disappoint me right in terms of it's always good and I've talked about this in the past with Cruz there is a value to having somebody who has at least some influence in the political realm who's actually engaged in politics fighting the good fight spreading good ideas defending principles and having you know some success some audience some effect it's inspiring. And even if Amash can't really go anywhere, but he could just be this outspoken person in Congress who might have some 
really unquantifiable effect on his fellow politicians, that's good in and of itself. So, you know, when people look at me and say, well, don't get too excited about any politician, there's a value, you know, to seeing, again, Milo, right? Milo says some of the right things in the worst of contexts that he has to be really brave to go say some of the things that he says, for instance, in one of these Sharia governed neighborhoods. That's inspiring, even if maybe he's doomed to fail or maybe he's also advocating some of the wrong ideas and whatever. There's, there's a, a value in that. It, it's things going on in the real world, furthering some value that you have. It's not just art. It's good to see these things in art too, but it's nice to see at least some inspiration in the real world, which is why I would now maybe go investigate Amash a little to see if I can see him fighting the good fight and be inspired by that, be heartened by that. Because otherwise, you know, I read to Tocqueville and it's like, yeah, that's where we are. It's horrible. We could have a pity party. So in any event, I've got what a minute and a half. So left, let me get back to the blog. Don't let it go.com. I think the only thing I might have left for you guys. Oh, I have two things left for you there. Right? Um, today is supposedly national martini day. And I've put a link to a recipe supposedly for a proper margarita, not martini, margarita. Sorry, guys. I'm a Californian. How can I say martini instead of margarita? Margarita, um, National Margarita Day. You've got a recipe there from Vodka Pundit. And then finally, you've got Duran Duran, Ordinary World, a song that I heard today and just decided it'd be fun to share with you. Uh, those of you guys who follow, follow me on Instagram, you'll you'll see a Duran Duran tie-in tomorrow for throwback Thursday on that as well. So thanks everyone for tuning in. For those of you who participate in the chat room, I guess it worked out that nobody called in because I had to fill the entire hour and a half with. I hope you enjoyed it. And tune in next week. I'll be here again Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern time, 12 p.m. Pacific time. In the meantime, go to don'tletitgo.com, all the different places on social media, and we'll interact until then. Take care.